1 Corinthians chapter 15, we make our way through this uh, glorious chapter on the resurrection. And today I'd like to focus on verses 29 through 34. But uh, just for context, I'll begin uh, reading in verse 20. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things were put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth and that you would help us to embrace all that is promised to us in the gospel and live lives that are consistent with the fact that we have been raised with Christ. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, as we've said many times, there were those in Corinth who were denying the resurrection of the dead, denying the fact that at the last day when Christ returns, he will give life to our mortal bodies and glorify our physical bodies together with him. And as Paul began the chapter by summarizing the content of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to the apostles He also went on in verses 12 through 19 to show the dire consequences of what it would mean if you, in fact, denied the resurrection, how at the end of the day, we would be of all people most to be pitied, and that the gospel preaching and our faith would be in vain. And then he followed that with the positive statement of the events surrounding the culmination of Christ's kingdom, as we read in our passage today. At his coming, he will glorify his saints. He will destroy all of his and our enemies, including our last enemy, death itself. 
and he will deliver that consummated kingdom over to his God and his Father so that the triune God may be all in all. And so we see here that the gospel is way more than just the fact that Jesus came to die for our sins so that our souls may go to heaven. That's only half of the good news. The other half of the good news is that Christ will return and he will save not only our souls, but restore the whole of the, the whole of the universe as he delivers the kingdom over to God so that God may dwell together with our people. And so that's really sort of the, the highlight, a really high point of our chapter when we read that God may be all in all. But it's our passage today, verses 29 and 30 through 34, that has given a number of commentators uh, a lot of reason to ponder. In fact, what seems to be the case here is that it seems Paul has gone back to a line of thought that he had back in chapter, in verses 12 through 19, where he goes on to list more logical inconsistencies of denying the resurrection. And this has struck many people as somewhat anticlimactic. After Paul goes on to talk about what's going to happen when Christ returns, he goes on to speak about more logical inconsistencies. Why do we do this? If this is the case, then why this? And it's the first logical inconsistency in verse 29 that when I read it to you has maybe caused many of us our eyebrows to raise and us to scratch our heads thinking, what on earth does Paul mean when he talks about people being baptized on behalf of the dead? Even as Paul asks the questions, the question, what do people mean? We might say, yeah, Paul, what on earth do they mean? And what do you mean when you refer to this strange practice of being baptized for the dead? Well, this, as I said, has puzzled many commentators. You'll find scores of different interpretations. And when you turn to the commentaries, they're really of no help. Um, you, you, you get three preachers in a room and you ask them what this verse means, you're going to get four different interpretations. Let me just give you a sampling of some of the things that you may read in some of the more popular commentaries. One notable commentator says, no one in fact knows what's going on. The best one can do in terms of particulars is point out what appear to be the more viable options, but finally admit to ignorance. Another says, verse 29 is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Interpretations abound, but no one has succeeded in giving an interpretation which is generally accepted. Yet another says, we have no clue to the meaning of this obscure and difficult verse. And finally, verse 29 remains a mystery. One commentator says that there's over 200 different interpretations as to this verse, and clearly we do not have the time nor the energy to go through every single one. But to summarize, the majority of interpretations all hinge on how they understand three different words in this passage. Either how they understand the term baptized, so should we understand this to mean literal baptism, or perhaps is Paul using it in a metaphorical sense? In the same way, for example, that Jesus asks John and James, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? referring to his death, or uh, interpretations hinge on how they understand the Greek word translated in, in the ESV on behalf of, how exactly is that preposition to be understood, 
And finally, interpretations differ on how they understand the term the dead. Is Paul referring to people who are really dead? Mostly dead? Or is he using that term in a metaphorical sense to refer to other people? As I said, there's well over 200 interpretations. I'm going to give you the top three today in the sermon. The first, uh, the first interpretation, and the reason why I narrowed it down to three is because it's either most widely accepted, uh, is maybe uh, uh, somewhat plausible, or maybe the least objectionable, or finally the one that I find to be the most persuasive. The first interpretation of understanding this obscure passage is that commentators say that there really were literal baptisms for the dead. That is, the Corinthians were being, be- being baptized on behalf of others who had died, who may or may not have professed faith in Christ, but for whatever reason were not, uh, uh, were not actually baptized. Uh, the, the, the word here translated on behalf of is the same word we find in verse 3, where Paul says that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so this interpretation says that Corinthians were being baptized with the assumption that their baptism would somehow benefit the one who had already died. Well, the problem with this interpretation is obvious. We have no other evidence in the New Testament, no other instructions, and no other uh, uh, description of people being baptized for the dead. Nor do we see this practice in the early church. And everything we are taught concerning baptism in the New Testament would absolutely forbid such a practice. We know that baptism is for the individual, and it's only the individual's faith that would make baptism efficacious or would benefit you. So there would be zero benefit for being baptized for somebody who had already died. And while we wouldn't want to put it past the Corinthians to do such a thing, as we've already seen them do all sorts of interesting practices, it is hard to believe that the Apostle Paul would mention this practice, being baptized on behalf of the dead, using it as grounds for holding the resurrection. Even if he didn't condone such a practice, why on earth would he mention it in such a, a, you know, a, a, a passing manner? If Paul had already felt it necessary to correct their abuses of the Lord's Supper, for example, or their abuse of spiritual gifts, or even their uh, the, uh, addressing proper and improper head coverings during worship, surely the Apostle Paul would have found space to correct this practice of being baptized on behalf of dead people. And so that's the problem that many people have with the interpretation that there were literal baptisms for those who had died. Well, a second interpretation would understand these baptisms not to be for the dead, but because of the dead. And that's another way we can understand that proposition translated on behalf of is because of. That is, according to this understanding, some were coming to faith and receiving baptism because of the influence of a departed loved one who had been a believer, with the implicit hope of being reunited to that loved one at the last day. We could all think of scenarios where, say, a a, a dying mother who is a believer uh, gathers her children at her deathbed and says, I want you all to come to faith in Christ, 
believe and be baptized so that I may see you at the last day. Surely this has happened. Maybe you yourself have come to faith as a result of the death of a loved one who had faith in Christ. Well, surely while this occurs, and surely while this is linguistically possible, according to the uh, translation of that word, because, uh, translated because of, there's a lot of reading into the text. Paul just talks about baptisms because of the dead. There's a lot of storyline that we're imposing into the text. This is what we call eisegesis, reading into the text rather than exegesis, deriving meaning from it. Further, and more importantly, we have no evidence that those who may or may not have been baptized as a result of the death of a loved one, we have no evidence that those were the same people who were denying the resurrection, in which case Paul's argument would fall flat. Those people who denied the resurrection would say, yeah, why on earth would they be baptized for the death of a loved one? Because there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, those are the first two of the three. And it's important to note at this point that those first two interpretations, either literal baptism for the dead or baptisms because of the dead, it's important to note that neither of those interpretations really fit into the context of chapter 15. It kind of comes out of left field and then goes away as as quickly as Paul mentions it. It doesn't fit in with what precedes nor with what follows, which leads me to the third interpretation that I find most compelling because it fits in with the context of chapter 15. And this interpretation understands these to be baptisms, not for the dead, not because of the dead, but on account of the dead. And yet when Paul uses the word here, the dead... He's using it not in a literal sense, but in a metaphorical sense, in sort of a tongue-in-cheek way to refer to himself and to his fellow apostles. And so here Paul's referring to baptisms on account of the apostles and their preaching ministry, whom Paul, in a tongue-in-cheek manner, refers to as dead men. Now, before we get into whether it's plausible for Paul to refer to himself and his fellow apostles as dead men, the dead, it's important to note that according to this interpretation, the word dead in the the first occurrence of the word dead in verse 29 is to be understood metaphorically, whereas the second occurrence of the word dead is to be taken literally. And so that's a major problem, a major hurdle that this interpretation needs to get over. How can Paul shift the meaning so quickly? How can he refer to the dead in a metaphorical sense in in one breath and in the very next breath say, if the dead are not raised at all, referring to the dead in a literal sense? Does Paul give a clue to the reader, a sort of tip of the hat saying, I want you to understand the first occurrence of the word in a metaphorical sense and the second occurrence of the word in a literal sense? I would say yes. Look there in the second half of verse 29. When he says, if the dead are not raised at all. That word translated at all is one Greek word that occurs only here in chapter 15. You'll notice that it's actually inserted 
into this verse, whereas it doesn't appear in similar verses like in 15 and 16. Look, look over for, for a second in verse 15 and 16. When Paul says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the, deads, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ, even, not even Christ has been raised. And then look in verse 32, where again Paul says, if the dead are not raised. You'll notice that there's an extra word that's, in, that's uh, imported in verse 29 when he says, if the dead are not raised at all. Why does Paul need to say, if the dead are not raised at all? Well, this Greek word that Paul puts in here, that's not found in similar verses, could also be translated actually. Actually. This is the same word that we see in chapter 5 when Paul says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Or in chapter 6 when he says, to have lawsuits among you is actually a defeat. And I think that this word actually, that's imported here in verse 29, should not be taken to modify the resurrection, but actually it should modify the dead. And so a better way to translate the second half of verse 29 would be if those who are actually dead are not raised. And so here Paul, I think, is giving a tip of his hat Uh, a a note to the reader, to the hearer, that here he's referring to people who are literally dead, referring to the the end of the day, uh, the the end of the age when Christ returns. Whereas the first occurrence, when he just talks about the dead, he's using it in a metaphorical sense. Well, moving back, would it be proper, and would would uh, uh, would Paul, refer to himself and to his fellow apostles as dead men, according to this interpretation? Well, I would say, yes. Remember how he already referred to himself and to his fellow apostles back in chapter 4? In 4 verse 9, he says, For I think God has exhibited us as apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is how Paul has already characterized himself and his fellow apostles, like men who were sentenced to death. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he uses very similar language when he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So it is here that the Apostle Paul brings up immediately the sufferings and persecution in life of cross-bearing that he and his fellow apostles endure for the sake of the gospel. And so it's very fitting for the Apostle Paul to refer to himself and his fellow apostles as dead men because of the task that they were called to do. And that's what he immediately does in verse 30 when he says, and why are we in danger every hour? You see, up until this point, when the Apostle Paul refers to him, uh, when, when he uses that word, we, up until this point, he's consistently referred not to, to he and his readers, but to he and his fellow apostles. For example, look at the second half of verse 11. So we preach, so you believe. And so here, clearly, he's referring to the fact that he and his fellow apostles are in danger every hour as a result of the fact that they have been commissioned to preach the gospel. Singling himself out in verse 31, the Apostle Paul even takes an oath. He takes an oath when he says, I die daily. He takes up his cross, he denies himself, and he follows after his Lord as an apostle. He uses an interesting uh, metaphor in verse 32 when he says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, this could be understood in a literal sense. Any of you who have seen the movie Gladiator know that the Romans used this as a means of punishment for, for criminals, but also entertainment for the rest of the people as they would throw them in with the lions or with other wild beasts and see how they fared. But it's highly unlikely that the Apostle Paul, uh, that this happened literally to the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. For one, he was a Roman citizen, and they wouldn't do that to a Roman citizen. Second of all, if the Apostle Paul was thrown to the lions or uh, had to fight wild beasts as a form of punishment, we certainly would have read about it in the book of Acts, or surely that would have been included in Paul's lists of sufferings that he has in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I think it's it's more fitting to understand the Apostle Paul in a metaphorical sense. When he refers to beasts and fighting with the beasts, he's referring to his human opponents which were great in Ephesus. As he even says in chapter 15, the, the opposition is great, even as he writes to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. So here again, you understanding this in a metaphorical sense to refer to humans. And if we take this understanding of verse 29 to refer to people being baptized uh, because of or on account of the apostles whom Paul refers to as dead men. If we understand it in this manner, I think we begin to see the connection of verse 29 with what, certainly what follows, because the apostle Paul goes right in to talk about the fact that he dies every day. So certainly he could refer to himself as a dead man. But also, we, uh, we also see Uh, uh, how it fits in with the passage as a whole. As Paul has already detailed the appearances of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to men such as Peter and James and Paul himself, the last of the apostles, the last and least of the apostles, he appeared to these men 
to commission them to carry on, not only proclaim the gospel, but also to carry on that saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ as they begin to gather, uh, 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 plant water, and harvest to people for his namesake, begin to build and expand upon the kingdom of Christ. The apostles were doing that for Christ as his direct representatives. And part of that task of gathering, preserving, and defending for uh, 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 the, the people of God, part of that task was their suffering for Christ. That was part and parcel of their callings as apostles, suffering for him. Jesus uh, said to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, after he had appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he told Ananias, who was hesitant to go talk to Saul for good reason, he says, go, go and talk to him, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Clearly, that was part of Paul's task as an apostle, as a chosen instrument of Christ, to bear his name before all, uh, before all he appeared. But notice the second part of his calling. Jesus says in verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. See, this was part of Paul's task and calling as an apostle, not only to preach, but also to suffer. And he saw that as his, as his goal in order to be glorified at the last day. He says in Philippians chapter 3, when he, after he details all of the lists of his accomplishments, Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, according to the zeal, a persecutor of the church. All of these uh, accomplishments that the world would look at as reasons for boasting. And he says, I count all of that as loss. I count all of it as rubbish, as literally excrement. And he tosses it all away to say, I just want to know Jesus. I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings so that I may be conformed to him at, his la- at the last day, so that he may share together in glory. And so when, when people begin denying the resurrection, this isn't just a theological issue for Paul. It's personal because his life is consumed with knowing Jesus Christ and being conformed to his image, which means the fellowship of his sufferings. And Paul begins to ask these people, well, wait a minute. If you were baptized as a result of my preaching or Peter's preaching or anyone else's preaching, what did you have in mind? What did you think you were getting yourselves into if there is no resurrection of the dead? Because the Corinthians were using these men whom Paul likely refers to as dead men, it were, these were the very ones that the Corinthians were dividing themselves over in party, party loyalty. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And undoubtedly, they took pride in who baptized them or under whose ministry they came to faith and were baptized. That's why Paul, for example, is thankful that he personally didn't baptize many of the people in the church. Lest he says, lest you say that you were baptized into my name. 
Paul wants nothing to do with that. And yet he questions them. What do people mean? What were they thinking when they were baptized as a result of these dead men? See, he reminds the Corinthians that they were not baptized on account of power, the powerful or the elite, hotshot philosophers or politicians or, or movers or shakers. No, they were baptized under the ministry of dead men, at least as far as the world is concerned. And so perhaps we can add this term, dead men, to the list, the growing list of terms that the Apostle Paul has for true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ He's mentioned the foolish, the weak, the low, despised, the non-existent, the scum of the earth. And we can add to it men who, as far as the world are concerned, are as good as dead. Why are people baptized as a result of their ministry? You see, baptism, especially by the hands of the apostles, makes zero sense if there is no resurrection of the dead. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of water to be baptized if you don't know what you're getting yourself into because baptism symbolizes not only our death, but also our resurrection. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter six, do you not know that all of us who are baptized, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, a life of self-denial, suffering, and cross-bearing is perfectly consistent with the fact that Christ has been raised and that we will be raised together with him. But as Paul says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection of the dead at the last day, there is no newness of life that we experience in the here and now. And so we might as well just party like there is no tomorrow. As Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 22, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. These were the words of the Israelites who were in Jerusalem, who, when the Assyrians laid siege to the city, rather than repenting in sackcloth and ashes, they said, hey, let's party because we're all going to die. This is nihilism. There is no meaning. Might as well enjoy yourself while it lasts. And Paul says, yeah, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then that's pretty much our best option. But of course, Christ has been raised. And there is a resurrection, guaranteeing the resurrection of the dead. And so that's why Paul goes on to warn his readers. He gives them a somber warning in verse 33 against self-deception. You see, the Corinthians thought that they could affirm a more palatable, a more socially acceptable version of the gospel and still live a godly life. And Paul says, no. You can't do that. You cannot deny the resurrection and be consistent to live a godly life. So he quotes a a very familiar saying of the day, bad company ruins good morals or or even bad conversation ruins good morals. You see, uh, he's uh, noting here that there's a direct relation between what we believe and how we act. Earlier, he warned the Corinthians that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, referring to the sexually immoral person who was in the midst of the church. And he says, cast him out, lest he have a pervasive influence upon the church. So it is here he warns us against false teaching. 
And so there's that saying, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right thinking leads to right living. And the Apostle Paul would clearly affirm that. And so he tells them to wake up, comparing them to drunken men who are in their drunken stupor. He tells them to wake up, to sober up, and to think righteously. And then taking a word that was so prized among the Corinthians, the word knowledge, the word that they had written to him back in chapter 8 saying, all of us possess knowledge. And yet the Apostle Paul now says, actually, you know what? Some of you don't. Some of you do not possess knowledge of God. Those who were denying the resurrection showed that they did not, in fact, have the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. As Paul said in chapter 2, it's the Holy Spirit who reveals to us the knowledge of God. The natural man does not accept the things of God. And so those who were denying the resurrection on the last day were showing themselves not to be spiritual men, not to be knowledgeable men, but ignorant men who could not receive the true teaching and knowledge of God. And so he says, I say that to your shame. The Corinthians who had prided themselves so much on their honor, on their reputation, who made every decision based upon whether something would bring them honor or shame, Paul assesses them according to God's standards and not the world's. He says, you show through your actions, through your denial of the resurrection, that you, in fact, do not know God. And this is a shameful thing for the church to tolerate. Well, in our passage, we saw yet again the Apostle Paul show the futility of being baptized and living a Christian life if, in fact, Christ will not give life to our mortal bodies at the last day. If Christ will not do that, then we might as well just eat, drink, and party like there is no tomorrow. But we have also seen conversely what it looks like to live a life that is consistent with the fact that we have been crucified with Christ so that we may be raised together with him. And what does that life look like? Well, Paul says it's one of taking up your cross, denying yourself daily, and following after your Lord. It's a life of suffering. It's a life of sacrifice. And we do all of that for the sake of Christ, so that we may know the fellowship of his sufferings, so that we might also partake of the power of his resurrection at the last day. One option affords you endless hope. The other, a hopeless end. Well, may God grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, not only the fact that Christ died for our souls, but also he, that he one day will resurrect our bodies and allow us to share in the glory that he has earned for us. And in the meantime, may he grant to us strength to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross and follow after him. Amen.